everyone, this is Janessa. And this is Kathy. And this is the Pathological Podcast, part two of the Diet Loft series. To be honest, I almost said this sister's nerdy podcast, so, <laughs> so ready. We're ready to not time it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't know, and we're going to just keep telling you guys because, you know, it's a fun podcast, but Kathy and I started up a second podcast that's called the Sisters Nerdy Podcast, where we talk about by the time this episode comes out, episode two of the Nerdy Podcast will already be out. And it's going to be like a cool recap on the um, WandaVision episode. So uh, my husband co-guests or whatever is a guest (laughs) on that one. Guest starred. Guest stars. (laughs) Um, So yeah, if that is your thing, why don't you guys check it out? Because it's so funny. I'm hilarious. Kathy is hilarious. And she gets into it with Joe in a funny way. And also, (laughs) also, I'm just going to say this, Kathy. Also, you tell Joe about all my crushes, and how dare you? <laughs> I mean, he has to find out some way or another. Does he? Does he, though? <laughs> I mean, you're making it public knowledge, so. That's true, but. I was going to say, if it takes off, he's going to find out anyway, so you might as well just tell him now. <laughs> See, that was my thing. I was going to be like, if it takes off and he finally listens to it or whatever, and he's like, what? I didn't know this. I was going to be like, I don't know what to tell you. That just means you're not listening to the podcast. How rude. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly he doesn't listen to the podcast because... He doesn't listen to this one because serial killers, murder, this kind of stuff is like, that's not that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He would, he would listen to the nerdy one, except I don't think he wants to hear himself talk. So I'm willing to bet any of the episodes that he is on, he will not listen to. (laughs) So either way. Maybe he just doesn't, he just doesn't want to hear your other crushes. Probably not. He's probably like butthurt now. (laughs) Hey man, I told the whole world that I had a crush on General Grievous. That's true. That is true. You, you, you can deal with having a crush on full best car mando oh full best car mando yeah so anyways <laughs> if you guys want a good laugh and also to talk about nerdy stuff like the new one division show uh head over there the sisters nerdy podcast on spotify anchor it takes forever to get on apple but it it will be on apple as well apple podcast but for this episode we are in Part two. So we ended part one, I think, with what, four of the victims that the hikers that have been found. Yes. So in this second part, we're going to start off with the rest of the hikers that were found, the conditions that were their bodies were in, because it gets more eerie, more creepy. The injuries are bizarre. And then we'll talk about what theories have gone around because you know by the end we'll find out that the Russian government kind of just was like it's probably a natural force of nature like like they didn't really say that but like they reopened it in 2019 and then they ruled it again as like a phenomenal force I'll enlighten y'all yes yes Kathy will go over that and we'll go over the theories and the most popular ones because there's I mean there's everything from was it an alien attack from, from that to like, was it a government like secret attack? So I'll just go over kind of the ones that are, you know, would be the most probable, but even then none of those really make sense as you'll see. So yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into it. Okay. So I'm going to start with, actually you start off with a uh, Slobodin because my part starts off after he was found. Yes, ma'am. So go ahead. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. <laughs> okay. 
So this is Rustin Slobodin, Slobodin. So just to put in perspective, he was 23 years old when he died and I'm 23. Like that's sad. Like you got to remember, most of them are pretty young, agile people and they accomplished way more than I have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Rustin's body was found 480 meters from the cedar tree on March 5th which is kind of interesting because it was like a couple weeks after Igor was found. Yes, that's right. Maybe yes. a week after. He was covered in a foot and a half of snow, which wouldn't be surprising since it's been a week since before Igor was found. So it could have snowed then. And he was found with his head face down with his head, like it was directed to the tent. So just like Igor, which I also found really weird. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of similarities between like some of his injuries and Igor's. And I'll get into that. He wore a long sleeve undershirt, a shirt, a sweater, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, and one felt boot on his right foot. His watch was stopped at 8.45 a.m. And on the chest underneath the sweater, there were two shoe insoles in the shirt pockets was also 310 rubles and his passport. And other pockets... They found a folding pocket knife, a pencil, a pen, a comb, matches with 48 sticks, and one cotton sock. Which I found interesting because if he had matches, he had the means to make a fire, you know? So it's interesting to see why he didn't do that. Right. Especially, like, he could have used at least one of the pair of socks as, like, kindling or something. Exactly. Kind of bizarre. For sure. His autopsy report reads that he had hemorrhages in his temporalis muscles. He had abrasions to his forehead. He had a bruise on his right eyelid that also had hemorrhaging to the underlying tissue. He had bruised knuckles, which suggested that he was in a hand-to-hand fight. And if you remember, Igor had like the same injuries to his hand as well that suggested that he was in a fight. I kind of find it interesting that they both had these injuries. I'm wondering if maybe they got in a fight with each other and maybe like some of the injuries that like the bruises on the face on Rustem is from Igor. Yeah, because their wounds are pretty similar and mirror each other. Like the bruising on the eyelid, maybe he was punched in the face. Yeah. So that's kind of what I think. He also had swollen lips, he had skin torn from the right forearm, and he had a fracture on his frontal bone indicating that he had trauma. So the autopsy reporter suggests that he was hit with a blunt object. Report also indicates he suffered loss of coordination due to shock after the blow, speeding the hypothermia up, but his actual death is ruled by hypothermia. It looked as if Rustam fell repeatedly on his face as he was walking down a mountain. Like, that's what his injuries consisted of. Rustam's body fell when he was relatively still warm, and it created, like, an icy bed underneath the snow. So he also showed that he had liver mortis spots on the surface of his body, which showed that he was moved after his death. But um, in the autopsy report, they also said that what could be mistaken as liver mortis spots could also be frostbite arrhythmia because the discoloration between those two are the same. Okay. But they didn't give like a clear finding as to which one it was actually ruled as. Because I guess while, once they cooled the body down, the like the spots turned a certain color. And I guess the, the coloration of the spots 
are both similar between them two. Okay. Well, let's get into what happens after they find Rustem. So after he was found, searchers would continue their efforts, but two months went by without a trace of the remaining four hikers. Then in May, the snow started to melt and Amansi, which if you remember, they were like the local native people to the area. The Amansi native Kurikov, probably, with his dog, noticed some cut branches that were forming a trail. He followed the trail 50 meters and he found black cotton sweatpants with the right leg cut off, probably with a knife is what they determined. So cedar branches, a young fir tree, and a tree missing its top uh, were found as he followed the trail. And then he came upon a woman's piece of clothing. And the only part that was still there was the left side of the sweater. The right half and the sleeves were cut off. So the sweater was presumed to belong to Liudmila Dubanina. The area was previously searched with avalanche probes, but the snow was deeper than expected. So searchers found what they would call a den which we'll attach pictures when we uh, do the post for this episode, but it's literally like, it looks like they built down into the snow an area for them to kind of like take shelter in. The den was made, they think, by the surviving four members of the group, and it was about 75 meters away from that first cedar tree where Krivonoshenko and Doroshenko were found. So the den was built into a ravine and it helped kind of hide them from the cold winds. And it was a common way to survive winters. And given the circumstances, it probably offered them the best chance of survival for these four members who seemed to live a little bit longer than the rest of the group. It appears the group also brought some of those cedar branches and laid them out at the very bottom of this den. And that they think it was to minimize the contact of their body and their clothing with the snow. So instead they would lay on the branches. Uh, It's also important to note that they did have their wits about them enough to build a den and then build like a bed of branches to lay upon because it kind of disproves the theory that some some people had that they experienced paradoxical undressing hypothermia which we're going to touch on at the very end after we get through all the strange and weird wounds that are found on these last four but it's basically a theory that you when you are experiencing hypothermia and this is documented and it's true there's some people who because they are so cold, their body tricks their, I'm sorry, their mind tricks their body into feeling a burning sensation. So they begin to undress. And so they were thinking maybe something like that happened, but at least we know that when the last four built this den and all of that, that they had, they weren't going crazy. Right. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too, because even though they survived um, longer than the other ones, they like their death is worse, I guess. They had more, their, their injuries are worse. Their injuries are worse for sure. And I think that that's what pokes a lot of holes into some of the theories because we'll get into it, but it just doesn't make sense. Autopsies of the bodies, which were eventually found on May 5th, would reveal significant and strange wounds for the four hikers. They were found to be crushed with immense force, which doctors compared to being hit by a car. It was also interesting that the bodies were actually found a few feet from their improvised shelter in the deep part of the ravine, an area that was only about four square meters big. Some of the clothes that were taken from the bodies left underneath the cedar tree were placed on the cedar branches near the group, but apparently they were not used, which is weird because if you... Uh find yourself stuck in this, you know, stuck in, in an area that you can't get back to your tent until warmth and you have the clothes, why wouldn't you use them? Yeah. 
So that's bizarre. Odd. So we're going to get into uh, Leonila Dubanina, which I'm just going to call her Dubanina from going out so I don't stumble and mess up her first name too much. So Dubanina was found wearing a short sleeve shirt, long sleeve shirt, and two sweaters. One of the sweaters actually belonged to Kravonashenko. And interestingly enough, they at one point decided to test the bodies to see if there were any radioactive particles on them. And that sweater did have was found to be yeah highly radioactive and again we'll touch on that at the end here but the body was dressed um, in underwear long socks and two pairs of pants the external pair was badly damaged by fire and subsequently ripped she also wore a small hat and two pairs of warm socks a third sock was not paired Um, and didn't you say that uh slobodin had an extra sock in his pocket yeah Mm, and she had an extra sock on her foot but not the, not the match. I wonder if that was the same one. We're ripping this case open, Kathy. We got this. <laughs> we got this. Dubanina, apparently in a, her last attempt to preserve her feet, took off her sweater and cut it into those two pieces. One half she wrapped around her left foot and then the other half she either had it wrapped around the other foot and it eventually fell off or she accidentally dropped it in the snow because remember that one was found further away from where they were by the Mansi guy. So she was missing her eyes and the soft tissue around her eyebrows and the eyebrows and the bridge of her nose. Her left cheekbone was partially exposed. She had damaged tissue around her left temporal bone. Eye sockets were completely empty. No signs of of anything left nose cartilage was broken and flattened the soft tissue of her upper lip was missing exposing her teeth and upper jaw her tongue was also missing ribs two three four and five were broke on the right side and two three four five six and seven were broken on the left side um, on the same area of the ribs so if you look at the picture that they drew when they did her autopsy it literally looks like a straight line on both sides except one side it just goes down a little bit further mm-hmm. massive hemorrhage in the heart's right atrium and a bruise on her middle left thigh uh, was also noted in her stomach they found about 100 grams of a dark brown mucosal I believe is how you pronounce it mass and they put in there that that indicated that her heart was still beating and blood was still flowing when her tongue was ripped out of her mouth. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. So her official cause of death is listed as a hemorrhage in the right atrium of the heart, multiple fractured ribs and internal bleeding. She was found to not be sexually active at the time of her death, which Kathy touched on in the last episode. Um, we think it's important because there were only two girls in the group and neither of them had any evidence at all of being assaulted sexually or even actively like choosing to be sexual. Dubanina was lying on kind of like a natural edge. If you can picture like a box built into the snow, she was coming up right to the edge and she was actually on her knees. So they found her with her face and the front of her body pushed into the snow like she was bent down on her knees. And then there was actually water rolling over that edge near her. Her mouth was open and we'll include a picture of this on our post. So make sure you guys check that out while you're listening because it's super creepy and eerie and weird. (laughs) That's just, that's such an unnatural position to be in too. It's 100% unnatural. And the only thing I can think of is either she was placed like that or she was blown into that position by an explosion or a big force of wind or something because I mean it's not like if you were dying you wouldn't 
you wouldn't kneel up against a wall of snow to rest. You'd lay on the ground or, or whatever. So, and she couldn't have fallen in that position as well. Yeah. Very odd. So Kathy, why don't you go over Alexander next? Cause he was the next one found. So Alexander Politov. Yes. Yeah. Let's go with that. Alexander's body uh, was missing a hat and his shoes. His upper torso was protected by a sleeveless shirt, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, a fleece sweater, and a ski jacket with the zipper unzipped, which is also very odd because yeah. you're in the cold. So why would it be unzipped? Which is also another thing with the other hikers as well, because their jackets were unzipped. Yep. The ski jacket was damaged. There was a hole on the left sleeve that was bur- that had burned edges, and his right sleeve was damaged as well. Again, weird with all the different burning and different parts and material. Like, why? So maybe he had, like, the only thing I can think of since it's on the front portion of his body, maybe he was too close to the fire because he couldn't feel it. Oh. Maybe they had a fire, but there's no indication that they had one. So I don't know. Yeah. That's odd. So the damage to his right sleeve had several tears on them and they measured seven to eight centimeters. The jacket was also unbuttoned and unzipped. In his pockets were a key, a safety pin, a blank paper, two packages of pills, which one of them, uh, they call it soda, but it's like an antacid. Oh, okay. And the other one was codeine. Oh. He also had on shorts, light pants, ski pants, and canvas pants. His right pocket had matches. He wore woolen socks and they showed burn marks as well. His autopsy report notes that he had lack of soft tissue surrounding his eyes. His eyebrows were noted to be missing and his skull bones were exposed. He also uh, had indications that his nose was broken. He had an open wound behind his left ear. His neck was actually deformed. What? He had diffuse bleeding and underlying tissues of his left knee. And when they found him, his overall skin color was a gray-green with a mixture of purple, which is not a natural skin color. No, like even... Especially if they were preserved in In the snow, yeah. And then uh, the open wound, the deformed neck, and the broken nose... They labeled that to him being in a fight, which is also interesting. Igor and Rustin both had, you know, wounds on their knuckles to suggest they were in a fight. And then the internal autopsy, they found that his heart, brain, and his lungs had blood in them. So he internally bled. And that's what he died from. Oh my God. I'm sorry, but that's bizarre. Like, unless he was double teamed, maybe by both of those men. That wouldn't make sense, though, because... Suggesting that he lived longer than both of them two because that's true. He was with the other four groups, so I can see maybe Igor and Rustin getting in a fight, maybe because you know they could have gotten in a fight before this even happened, you know, and it just wasn't noted. Yeah, because maybe because Igor was no, not Igor, right? No, Igor was the leader of the group, yes. so maybe they had a you know falling out or a difference of opinion because he wanted to do on the mountain slope maybe they wanted to go in the forest I don't know right if Alexander was alive after them like it just doesn't make sense that's true that he would have that bad of wounds and then why would his eyebrows be missing like that's and he had his eyes he had his eyes but like the tissue around it was missing I don't know why I'm focused on the eyebrows but it doesn't make sense to like for him to not have eyebrows yeah you're 100% right 
Yeah, and some of his injuries are consistent with uh, Ludmila. Yeah, Ludmila with the lack of soft tissue and then the broken nose and having the skull bones exposed. So very interesting. Wow. So they said that he was in a fight. It just with whom? With whom? And and if he was in a fight, I mean, it sounds like he was pretty badly injured. How could he have made it with the group that lasted the longest? I mean, this group was attacked after. So maybe whatever, like, caused them to flee the tent, the other ones died of hypothermia. But like, I mean, all of their injuries are a lot worse than the ones before. Mm -hmm. So maybe whatever, because I think it's foul play. And that's just me. Oh, like there's there's something. no way like an avalanche could cause someone to have their tongue ripped out while they're still alive. Like exactly. that doesn't make sense. Whatever was chasing them clearly had it out for the last four as well. Exactly. Wow. All right. So let's get into hiker Semyon Zolotaryov. So Semyon's body was found wearing two hats, a scarf, shorts, and a long sleeve shirt, black sweater, and a coat with the two upper buttons unbuttoned. Hold on. What's also interesting was Alexander was missing his hat. So the two hats, maybe when he mm-hmm. died, he took the hat. Interesting. His lower body was protected by underwear, two pairs of pants, and a pair of ski pants. He did have a copy of a newspaper, several coins, a compass, and a few other small items that were actually not noted in the report. They were noted when the bodies were found, but they weren't logged, which I thought was interesting. He also wore socks and a handmade pair of leather shoes known as burka. Um, While they were weather slash waterproof, they probably didn't provide enough warmth to keep his toes from eventually suffering from frostbite. Kind of seems like eventually, you know, some sort of moisture would leak in and they would freeze. His toes would freeze. His eyeballs were also missing. He was missing soft tissue around the left eyebrow with a six, uh, sorry, with a seven by six centimeter cut exposing the bone. He had an open wound on the right side of his skull exposing the bone. Ribs number two, three, four, five, and six were broken on the right side. And he had a flail chest. And a flail chest is a life-threatening medical condition that occurs when a segment of the rib cage breaks due to trauma and becomes detached from the rest of the chest wall. So please tell me how a simple small fall or avalanche can crush it like that. And again, his injuries are consistent with Alexander and and Ludomila. Mm-hmm. So he was found with a camera around his neck, which was rumored to be a surprise to Yuri Yudin. And if you remember him, he's the guy that opted to leave the expedition a little bit early because he was having some like knee and back pain. So Yuri says that he assumed that all the cameras that were found when the tent was found were the only ones that had been brought. What investigators discovered was that Semyon actually had brought two cameras. Both were his, but Yuri says he never remembers Semyon mentioning a second camera at all. And unfortunately, because he was wearing the camera when the snow melted, water damaged the film, and they were never able to recover what was on the film for that camera. Convenient. Yeah, super convenient, right? So Semyon was also found holding a pen in one hand and a small notepad in the other. One of the investigators, Colonel Ortoyukov, reportedly grabbed the notepad out of Semyon's dead hand, looked at it, cursed, and said, quote, he's written nothing, but the whereabouts of the notepad is unknown. It was never filed in the case evidence or seen by anybody else. Hmm. Very suspicious. 
And like, why make a show of it? Like if you're the investigator guy, and again, this is just two idiots talking on a podcast. We don't know anything. We're not accusing anyone of anything, but, (laughs) but like, it seems, can you just picture it? Like he grabs the notepad, like, oh, nothing's there. Damn it. And then just like puts it in his pocket and walks away. Like, hmm, really? Yeah. If there was nothing to hide, why wouldn't he log it in with the. Exactly. Or let somebody else look at it or whatever. So both Semyon and Dubanina have interesting, interesting, have interesting uh, patterns of injuries. They are very similar in the direction and force of their injuries, despite difference in shape, height, and body composition between the two. This suggests that whatever caused those injuries was not a single uniform event. Here's an excerpt from the interrogation of forensic expert from the Regional Forensic Investigation Bureau, and his name is Lev Ivanov. So they ask him a question, how is it possible to explain the cause of the damage to Dubaninia and Semyon? Is it possible to, to combine them into one case? So they suffered from the same event. And the forensic expert said, I think the character of the wounds on Dubanina and Semyon, multiple fractures of the ribs on Dubanina they were bilateral and symmetrical, but on Semyon, they were only one-sided. Both had hemorrhaging into the cardiac muscle with hemorrhaging into the pleural cavity, which is evidence of them being alive when they were injured. So it's not like they died from hypothermia and then something happened from there, like a tree fell or something like that. Uh, These wounds, especially appearing in such a way without any damage to the soft tissue on the outside of the chest, are very similar to the type of trauma that results from a shockwave of a bomb. Oof. Oof. So next question, how long could Dubanina and Simeon have lived? And he says, Dubanina died 10 to 20 minutes after the trauma. She could have been conscious. Sometimes it happens that a person with a wound to the heart can talk, run, and ask for help. Semyon could have lived longer. It needs to be taken into account that they were all trained, physically fit, and strong people. So I think that's the toughest thing is that they believe that they were alive enough to understand that they had some pretty critical injuries. And that's so sad. (laughs) Next, we'll get into Nicolet Thibault-Brignole. So Nicolet was well protected against the cold. It was suggested that he and Zolotaroff might have been outside of the tent at the time that the mysterious threat struck them. This explains why both men were wearing some type of footwear and were covered by several layers of clothes. Both men were much better prepared than the rest of the group when they were forced to abandon their tent. Nicolay wore a canvas fur hat and home-knitted woolen hat. He was wearing a shirt, sweater worn inside out, and a fur jacket on sheepskin. Wool gloves were found in the right pocket along with three coins, a comb, and several pieces of paper. Lower parts of the body were protected by underwear, sweatpants, cotton pants, and ski pants. On his feet, he wore hand-knitted woolen socks, a pair of felt boots. He had also two watches on his arm. One stopped at 8.14, and the other one stopped at 8.39. And when did you say... Alexander, his was 8.45. Whoa, that's creepy. Oh, no, it wasn't Alexander. It was um, Rustin, Slobodin. That's right. His was 8.45 a.m. Interesting. That's weird. That's really weird. So Nicolay had multiple fractures to the temporal bone with extensions to the frontal and sphenoid. Sphenoid? Yeah, sphenoid bones. Thank you. It was a massive head trauma. And you can look at the pictures like his skull looks like sunken in where the trauma was. He had a bruise on the upper lip on the left side and hemorrhage on the lower forearm. 
The investigator who undertook the autopsy excluded accidental fall on a rock as a possibility for such a massive and unusual skull fracture. So again, we're going to go back to that Lev Ivanov guy, the forensic expert. And so they ask him, what kind of force could Nikolay have received such an injury from? And he says, in the autopsy conclusion, it's shown the damage to Nikolay's head could have been the result of jettisoning of the body. The medical examiner said, I don't believe these injuries could have been the result of Nikolay simply falling from the level of his own height, i.e. falling and hitting his head. The extensive, depressed, multi-splintered fracture could be the result of an impact of an automobile moving at high speed. This kind of trauma could have occurred if Nikolay had been thrown and hit his head against rock or ice. And how could that have happened where they were? That doesn't make any sense from an avalanche. So an explosion sounds like... Yeah, and we'll, I have some interesting stuff at the end here. That to me seems like the most likely, likely scenario. So then they ask, is it possible that Nikolay was hit by a rock that was in someone's hand? And he answers, in this case, there would have been damage to the soft tissue, and that was not evident. So imagine a head wound where the skull has that much damage, but the outside of the skin does not. Uh, they ask, how could Nikolay have lived, or I'm sorry, how long could Nikolay have lived after the trauma? Could he have moved on his own? And he says, after this trauma, Nikolay would have, been, would have had a severe concussion. He would have been in an unconscious state. Moving him would have been difficult and close to the end, movement would not have been possible. I believe he would not have been able to move even if he had been helped. He could only have been carried or dragged. He could have shown signs of life for about two to three hours after whatever happened to him happened. So those are the remaining hikers that were found. Like Kathy's mentioned, they have the worst wounds of, of all the bodies that were found. And it's interesting that they were together because it'd be one thing if they were spaced out like the other bodies were and they had similar wounds, but they were all spaced out, but they were found in pretty much the same area, the small area. So let's talk about the radiation. There was detectable levels of radiation that were found on some of the clothing. The brown sweater that Dubonino was wearing that belonged to Krivonoshenko, as well as Alexander's trousers on the lower half and on the waistband of his sweater were all found to contain radioactive particles, much higher than any amount you would find naturally, because there is small levels of radiation found in nature. And this is, was like much higher than that. Which is very odd being out in like the middle of nowhere. Very odd. Yeah, being out in literally the middle of the Siberian like forest area. Studies of the soil the hikers were found to be in also showed no radioactive particles at all. So this wasn't remnants that were left in the soil. And I thought it was interesting that it was on specific parts. Like it was on the pants and then it was on the waistband part of the shirt, but it wasn't on the upper part of the sweater at all for uh, Alexander. And then for Dubanina, hers was just kind of like all over the sweater there. Vladimir Levashov, the main radiologist, conducted the examination, and he concluded that the clothes were most likely contaminated while working with radioactive substances or via contact. However, this contamination exceeds the normal level, level for people who work with radioactive substances. No clear reason or explanation was ever given as to how the radiation ended up on just these two hikers. That's so weird. And one of the things I read was maybe when they were doing their schooling because of the type of majors that some of them might have had, they could have gotten it there. I don't know. I feel like that'd be odd that they'd have that much radiation on them. 
And again, it's like weird parts of their clothing. Like if you were working, which they do mention that this is higher than any amount that somebody would have worked with on purpose. But if you had it, you would think it'd be on your arms and like the upper part of your sweater. You wouldn't think it would be on the pants or on the lower half. So, so what was clear to family members and others in the community as the details of the autopsies were released was that things didn't really add up or make sense. And it kind of seemed like the investigators were pushing for it to be closed. All types of theories started swirling around of what actually happened to this group of hikers. And we're going to talk about some of those theories and the search for the answers answers that eventually reopened the case, as Kathy mentioned at the beginning. So let's talk about an avalanche. So actually, on July 11th, 2020, Andrew Kuryakov, deputy head of the Urice Federal District, he announced an avalanche to be the official cause of death for the die-off group. Agreeing with these claims, American author Benjamin Radford, he says that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where the trees would help slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, which was the Krivonoshenko and Doroshenko, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under the snow. That's what this guy thinks happened. Oh, like, that makes no sense. Yes. I was going to say, because they're all pretty, like, knowledgeable hikers, you know, they have their grade two certification. Yeah, they were working on their their level three, which was the absolute highest. So these weren't novices, like they knew what they were doing. And I feel like they would have known to, and avalanches weren't even common in this area. So that too, and if they thought an avalanche was happening, I don't think they would have cut themselves out. I just like, just the thought of like, they, they were woken up in the middle of the night they're not going to be like, oh, I think an avalanche is happening, you know? Exactly. There's evidence that contradicts that an avalanche happened in that location because the tent and the bodies that were um, found did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche taking place. And an avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over the wide area that it took place. And they found none of that. And the skis were standing up. And the skis were standing up from where the tent was built. So in 2015, experienced investigators from the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation, on request of the family members, confirmed that they believed it was an avalanche that was the demise of the group. They confirmed that weather on the night of the tragedy was very harsh, with wind speeds up to hurricane force, a snowstorm, and temperatures reaching negative 40 degrees Celsius. These factors apparently weren't considered by the 1959 investigators who arrived at the scene of the accident almost three weeks later. And this is how this group, Russian Federation Committee people, this is how they believe the events went. So on February 1st, the group arrives to Kolat Siakil Mountain and erects a large nine-person tent in an open slope without any natural barriers such as forest trees. On that day, as well as the few preceding days, a heavy snowfall continued with strong winds and frost. The group traversing through the slope and digging the tent to anchor it into the snow weakens the snow base. During the night, the snowfield above the tent starts to slide down slowly under the weight of the new snow, gradually pushing on the tent fabric starting from the entrance. 
the group wakes up and starts evacuation in a panic with only some able to put on their warm clothes. Since the entrance was blocked, the group escapes through holes that cut into the tent fabric and descends the slope to find a place of perceived safety. Due to some members not being dressed appropriately for the weather, the group splits. Two of the group, the least dressed, head to the trees and build a fire. They are the first bodies found. Three hikers, including Diet Loff, attempt to climb back to the tent. They were better dressed than the group who went to the trees, but still quite underdressed for the weather and not wearing appropriate footwear. Their bodies were the ones found between the tent and the trees. Investigators believe they were exhausted trying to climb in the deep snow to get to the tent and from the extreme cold. The remaining four, equipped with warmer clothes and shoes, may have been trying to find or build better camping themselves in the forest. Their bodies were found about 70 meters from the group who built the fire pit over by that cedar tree. The issue with the avalanche theory, in my opinion, is it doesn't address the severe injuries like the missing eyeball and tongue that some of the group suffered, as well as some of the more acute injuries and wounds. So we have those cutaneous wounds. We have just the different levels of cuts and and stuff like that. And I feel like if most of that was caused from trees or tree branches, they would find evidence and maybe they just didn't test for that on some of the trees or the trail leading to where they were. I just really don't think it was an avalanche. Yeah. So another theory thrown around was that it could have been a catabatic wind that killed the group. In 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition was made to the site of the group, of the Dietloff group, and after investigations, they proposed that a violent catabatic wind was the cause. Catabatic winds are kind of like a rare event and can be extremely violent. They were implicated in a 1978 case at the Anaris Mountain in Sweden, where eight hikers were killed and one was seriously injured in the aftermath of this catabatic wind. So they say that the topography of this location was the same as the Swedish one, and they believed it would have been too dangerous for the group to stay in the tent if this catabatic wind happened. So the group left quickly to find shelter in the trees, and then they became disoriented in the storm, and then that's, and then they froze to death. But again, that doesn't account for a lot of those injuries. They say, like, I tried to find videos of what a catabatic wind would look like. Um, And I feel like even though the tent wasn't really anchored into anything other than dug deep into the snow, wouldn't they still think it would be safer to stay in the tent as opposed to try to get to the trees? Well, if it was a wind, wouldn't the tent also be, like, not where it was? Yeah, it would have been moved. It would have been, in like, in the forest, I'm guessing, because the direction of the... It it was on a slope, so I'm guessing it would have been blown down. And so would the skis. Exactly. And even if you wanted to blame the tears and cuts in the tent on the wind, like thrashing through it somehow, again, like there were no bodies in the tent. There was just supplies. And if these winds were really that strong, it would absolutely have moved the tent and knocked over the skis. 100%. Another hypothesis popularized by Donnie Ecker's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, was that the wind going around the Kolat uh, Oh God, the Kolatsiakil Mountain created what they call a Carmen Vortex Street, which can produce an infrared sound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. And I feel like they're just grasping at straws here, but I thought it was interesting, so that's why we're going to talk about it. So, according to Eckhart's theory, the infrared the infrared sound generated by the wind as it passes over the top of the mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Eckhart claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary, 
and that they fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by some was a result of them stumbling over a ledge of the ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. And it doesn't explain the missing stuff, the missing eyeballs and tongue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this one, in my opinion, seems like it might be the most accurate, most likely, I should say. So speculation also exists that the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. So the theory alleges that the hikers were awoken by loud explosions. They fled from the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return. There are records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in this area at the time that the hikers were there, and parachute mines detonate while still in the air. So rather than upon striking the Earth's surface and produce signature injuries that were similar to those experienced by the hikers. The theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky with the general area to where the hikers were. And you can read in an article done by the BBC where they interview someone who was actually alive because again this took place in 1959 so they interview someone who was alive who lived near where the hikers went missing and she reports that that night she saw glowing orbs that were like orangey in the night sky over that area would that explain the radiation too though maybe I didn't I don't know what type of bombs like what they were made of but it could maybe they were close enough it explains some of the injuries and the burns but the missing eyeballs i don't know if it would explain that unless there was some sort of radiation and it like melted the eyeballs maybe but the missing tongue too why would one part of the body dissolve and not like all of it you know yeah that's true and especially like Finally, the last theory we're going to talk about is the paradoxical undressing that I mentioned before. So International Science Times posted that the hiker's death was caused by hypothermia, which can induce a behavior in which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. Again, this theory only really works for six of the nine hikers as three were dressed in really good layers and appropriate footwear. It doesn't help account for all the other injuries that were there. Yeah. Kathy is going to talk about how they reopened the case. Yeah. All right. So the investigation investigation for Diet Loft Pass was reopened in February 2019 because I guess they found a document that reopened the case, but they didn't say what the document was. Hmm. That like caused them enough interest to reopen the case? Yeah. Oh. So I moved from the regional branch to the investigative committee to the federal branch. Andre Kurikov, folks up at the Sverdlovsk region prosecutor's office, said at a February 4th, 2019 conference that a prosecutor's office had requested all documents relating to the case directly or indirectly to be sent to him. In March, investigators returned to the scene and carried out nine separate examinations. The investigation determined that there are only three options, hurricane, snow slab, or avalanche. And then they later just labeled it to a phenomenal force. (laughs) So after the second investigation took place, no conclusive evidence was found and they determined it was caused by the overwhelming force. Like more citizens believe that the force was caused by a murderer and an unusual one at that. And that's kind of where the article left off. I feel like you could find simple explanations for why they left the tent in the manner that they did. 
maybe they were attacked. Maybe it was an avalanche. Maybe blah, 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 blah. But that doesn't explain everything that happened after. Even with the explosion one, with them exploding in the air, it would explain a lot, especially like there not being any evidence on of it on the ground. Yeah. If they were close enough, but not as close enough to where like their face melted or whatever, like they're not missing arms or limbs or anything like that. I could see like the blowback from yeah. that could cause a lot of those injuries. But at the same time, like there's not one single event that can explain all of their injuries. That's true. I feel it too with an explosion, you would have that soft tissue damage, at least some of it. And they had like cuts or they had like linear cuts or wounds, almost like intentional, like somebody did that. The rest of their soft tissue was fine, but then they had extensive skull damage or or rib damage. So yeah, or like it, it could explain the missing eyebrows too, depending on how close the explosion was. I think it was for Igor that said that he had an incision uh, for one of his injuries. Yeah, he had an incision on his right tibia, which kind of suggests that somebody did that. So whether he got in a fight with one of the other hikers or if it was something else. That's so weird. But dietlothpass.com is like an extensive website where they go into literally everything. The timeline of events, the autopsies, you can see pictures of the autopsy of the bodies that were found, of the injuries, all of that. And they make note, first of all, that the group seemed to be in good spirits with each other. The most contentious thing that could have happened was that there was the two that had previously dated that had broken up at some point before the trip. But that's it. Even that didn't seem like it was a big deal. It seemed like they were friendly. They were young. They probably had some fun flirty moments, but that everyone was there for the same thing. They wanted to get their certification, go on this expedition, have fun doing it, and then come back. You know, they're hugging each other. They're laughing. They're smiling. They're doing their thing. So it's just hard to believe that it's something within the group caused them to turn on each other like even in the diary like none of their the the only one that i remember that someone got cursed out was because she burned the gloves and she's like oh he cursed me out i think that was for dubanina um she burned krivonashenko's jacket i believe on accident while trying to dry it out so so maybe between the two of them i mean that seems like the most contentious thing that could have possibly happened but then there's a picture of him wearing that burn jacket with a big smile on his face yeah kind of like in a joking like huh look what happened you know what I mean so I don't know I just I have a hard time believing that something happened within the group that caused it to fracture and for them to turn on each other at least in the tent and then it seems like they went back to different groups I feel like something happened that they were forced in a panic to cut out of that tent and they just broke up. And unfortunately they kind of ended up where they ended up. And for whatever reason, the group that was more well-dressed, whether because they went and grabbed clothes off the dead bodies, or maybe they were already outside when this event occurred or whatever it was, they were well-dressed and were able to stay alive a little bit longer. Which is also interesting because if they were like, if two of them are already outside, like Nikolai, I think you said, was yes. out, it could have been theorized to be outside and that's why he's better dressed than the other ones. Like you think that if there was something around the tent or coming for the tent that he could see, like he would wake them up exactly, rather, rather than something like just waking them all out out of panic state. No, a hundred percent. Some stuff can explain some injuries, but I just don't think it all make, it doesn't make total sense. There's not one cohesive answer that accounts for everything that happened from the tent down to how the bodies were found. There's not one thing that fits. Yeah. 
just like in the same realm as Panama Girls. There's just, it's a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, even with the burn marks, like if they were close enough to an explosion, I feel like the burn marks would be more consistent, like all over their body rather than just like, oh, one on a sock and one on a piece of shirt. Like it just, it doesn't, it's not just me thinking about it right now. It just, it's not cohesive at all. No, there's many layers of that. Fortunately, we'll never know, but there's no way, there's no heckin' way that it was an avalanche or supernatural force. None of it really makes a whole lot of sense. So that is the Diet Loft Pass story. I'd love to hear what you guys think happened, your theories on it. So make sure that you head over to our Facebook, which is the Pathological Podcast, Instagram, same name, Pathological Podcast, and can you leave stuff on TikTok? I'm a grandma. I don't know how TikTok Oh, yeah, works. you can like comment and stuff on the videos. Perfect. Yeah, so leave us what you guys, um, your comments and your ideas and thoughts on what could have happened here. And make sure you follow us on all those social media platforms. Make sure you please check out our new podcast, The Sisters Nerdy Podcast. We would love it if you guys take a listen and join us in the fun over there. Take your mind off of this case. <laughs> it's a lot lighter than this stuff. It's so much lighter, um, which is kind of like a nice reprieve. So that'll do it for this episode and we'll catch you guys on the next one. See you next time. Bye.